so within the physical installation, which has now been transformed into a digital one for, you know, because of the pandemic, but the initial physical installation had these three channels projected onto screens that were overlapping in a zigzag pattern such that the viewer to move between the three perspectives offered to them would have to perform that snaking cue that is typical of crowd control. Welcome to season four of Unsequenced, a podcast about the choreographic process. I'm Stephanie Wolf. On today's episode, contributor Sydney Burroughs digs into the inspiration and process behind a work called Crowds. She spoke with the creator. My name is Sarah Friedland. I'm a filmmaker and a choreographer, and I, I make work at the intersection of moving images and, and moving bodies. From a young age, Friedland was inspired by the murmuration of birds and their unique formations and being mesmerized by the way in which they would fold in on each other and the way in which this pattern of murmuration both was really spectacular and also enabled a form of safety, but also had this sort of terrible possibility of constant mutation, a wonderful and terrible possibility. And I think that that type of um, kind of slippery collectivity really stayed with me as a type of pattern for a group of bodies moving together. Like the groupings of birds from her childhood, Friedland found interest in patterns of groups of people. This led to her creation of Crowds, a cinematic dance work that she initially created as an interactive exhibition. There is this sort of choreographic layer to our discourses around collective life and around public life. And so often that is both invoked, those choreographies are invoked in our verbal discourses, how we talk about uh, collective life, but also in terms of of the visual narratives we have. Um, and that crowd choreography often functions as a type of stand-in, um, almost as like a stand-in for the state of collective life or the, or the state of the public and how those crowd choreographies are, are excerpted um, and circulate in that way. And so I wanted to start to kind of attend to that choreographic strata of our discourses and, and really understand how it is that we create these thresholds between different crowd types and how those function politically. Friedland has created site-specific choreography as well as narrative films that utilize gestural languages. Her work often combines the moving forms of film and dance. And I'm really fascinated by um, what these two forms share in terms of their preoccupation with movement. Um, and so I think a lot of my work in the last few years has come out of trying to understand the way in which embodiment is framed by different film forms. You know, in the case of crowds, looking at how how the body of the crowd is documented in moving images, um, but then also in other pieces, looking at everything from home workout videos to um, social guidance films to corporate instructional films that aren't, you know, explicitly dance films, but are but are framing the conditions of moving bodies in different ways. Dancer and choreographer and filmmaker who came to Bologna to produce this with me. And I think both of us were just really interested in and sensitive to how our practices of working with dancers could translate to 
how we ran the set. Um, instead of thinking of like the dancers are over here doing this, and then we have a whole set of, you know, other kind of forms of knowledge and practice that we have with the crew over here. And of course that happened to a certain extent because these, these practices are very ingrained, but starting to think about what um, kind of forms of knowledge that are so kind of natural to dancers um, in working at the game together could flow into the set um, and the crew. And I think my favorite example of that is our grip who was responsible for pulling off that slow dolly shot of the second channel. The way in which we kind of timed it was in terms of choreographic cues in the movement, but also in terms of like physical cues in the space of like this, you're going from this column to this column. And we would set the pace by my, I would like start to move slowly and said, you know, can you mirror this pace? And basically agreed that this was another way of saying, please move as slow as you possibly can. And we all just watched him. It was amazing in this take that we weren't watching the dancers. We were watching the grip balance his weight very slowly from foot to foot, that shifting. Um, it was this glacial pace and the way in which, you know, he was, he had decades of practice as a grip of moving a dolly. He had this like gorgeous duet between him and the body of the camera and all of the equipment supporting it. Um, and the dancers ended up giving him a round of applause at the end of the take because it was this beautiful performance, you know, and it's a performance that that privileges the gaze of the camera and the image that it produces, but it's still this very physical interaction between, you know, the camera operator's body and the body of the camera. And it was really wonderful, I think, to have a producer who was a dancer who could kind of share this, share this framework where we, we were kind of constantly trying to encourage interaction between the dancers and the crew to kind of share these embodied experiences. Um, and that also played out physically on set, you know, we didn't have any separate spaces. Um, and so the, everyone just started sunbathing in the piazza together. Um, so it, I guess this is just to say it's been sort of an ongoing question of, of, you know, what do filmmakers have to teach dancers and vice versa? And, and how can those sort of ways of moving and seeing intermingle? While Crowds is displayed as a three-channel video installation in a gallery space and was filmed in a piazza in Italy, the project originated in a dance studio. And so as much as, you know, we created a filmic work, the practice and the process was very much based in how dancers exchange knowledge between, between each other somatically um, and what is possible within that like emergent quality of like a, of a dance studio and what you can do in it. Before working with her dancers, Friedland turned to YouTube for a deep dive into crowd research. And so I started by making a list of all of the crowd types that I could think of, all of the words that name different crowd types, and watching hundreds and hundreds of videos on YouTube, going across time and location, using the YouTube algorithm to kind of go deeper and deeper and annotating the choreography I saw. You know, what were the formations, the rhythms, the textures? Where were there identifiable thresholds between different crowd types? So when does 
for example, a group of pilgrims stop being a group of pilgrims? Is it when they're no longer facing you know, the object or site of their pilgrimage? Is there something else? And of course, these distinctions aren't solely choreographic. You know, they have to do with discourses around race and gender, class, etc. But there is this sort of, I guess I've, I've been calling it like a choreographic strata to, to all of these, these distinctions as well. That archival research sort of came into contact with this completely other archive, which was that of the dancers and their own embodied memories, both of having been in certain crowds, but also having witnessed them or even having inherited certain memories from family members or kind of collective memory um, from all of the places that they were coming from. The dancers were from all over the world, even though we were working in Bologna, they had all assembled there for, for nine months. And so we started every rehearsal by naming one crowd type. And then the dancers, I invited them to share their embodied memories. The way we did this is sort of, I've been calling it embodied interviewing, where it doesn't have the kind of formal structure of an interview where, you know, I have the power to ask questions and they answer them and it's very verbal. Instead, there'd be this sort of the prompt would be us naming one crowd type and then they would share these memories and the logic of the crowd that we were discussing that day. From these experiments in the studio, Friedland and her dancers established an improvisational choreographic process they called crowding. Kind of jumping off from the flocking exercise in Viewpoints Theater, where they would start sort of arranged in a formation that was usually fairly tight, but had some resemblance of the crowd type we were we were working on that day. And they would start by adhering to those rules that they had just shared with one another and then slowly bring in, you know, dissensus and rule breaking and, you know, other possibilities. And it would just unravel from there. An intention for, for me in the project was not to have it be sort of specifically extracting particular histories but rather to kind of take on this slippery quality where there are both moments of like familiarity for viewers where they might see something and feel like they it's a crowd they've seen or been in, but that the specific history it, it invokes for viewers is going to be dependent upon their own experiences and their own context. And what was it like filming in Italy? Did the location, you know, contribute to the piece? Yeah, enormously. Um, I really wanted to be making this and shooting this in a space where I could imagine all of the crowd types we were playing with actually existing in the location we shot in, in a piazza. And so Italy really has this unique relationship to public space that perhaps didn't used to be so unique of, of having a public square. But I feel like most of the public squares in the U.S. don't have the same fluidity in terms of having so many different functions of public life occur there. And what was really appealing about this space is that in its like brutalist architecture and gray concrete, it feels like it could be almost anywhere in the world post World War II. And so that was really important to feel like it could be anywhere and nowhere at the same time. And simultaneously that it could be almost any time in this this period of you know late 20th to uh, 21st century um, and that that would aid the viewer in in seeing these kind of 
slips of familiarity and unfamiliarity. So I was trying to look at, you know, what were the like visual grammars of documenting these crowds. And so these three perspectives were the ones that I saw as really being recurrent across different politics and different times. Um, one of the bird's eye view. The second is kind of an amalgamation of a, few, of a few different types of shots, but shots that hover at the periphery of a crowd, you know, right in that space between participation and spectatorship. Um, so we have the second channel is this wrapping dolly shot around the piazza um, that moves very, very slowly um, right at that edge of, of where the crowd ends. And then the third is the kind of, you know, the stereotype of the face in the crowd. Um, and so from the first to the third channel, each gets more and more intimate, a little bit closer um, towards the, the bodies of the crowd. And the idea was also to kind of create the architecture of the physical installation in these shot choices. While Friedland had initially created crowds as an interactive in-person art gallery experience, the COVID-19 pandemic forced her to recreate it in a digital landscape. But I've actually really loved this process of translating it. And I've been really fortunate to work with a new media artist named Jonas Eltis, who did the web design. I think we kind of, at least the way I've been thinking about our collaboration was that of like my creating a performance score in the way that a choreographer might create a performance score for a dancer. But in this case, it was creating a performance score for a coder where instead of trying to like create a virtual room I really wanted to think about how does a viewer feel moving in the space of the gallery? What is the choreography of their vision and of their ambulation in the gallery space? And if I were to write that out, how can that score then be translated by someone creating movement across a screen, across a desktop, across ones and zeros? And so I drew out like a map for him of how, how eyes might travel across the screen and how I wanted to feel movement between these different perspectives. And from that map, we started thinking about like, okay, is that movement happening in a sense of like depth into the screen? Is that a horizontal scroll? And we ultimately decided on this sort of, um, I think it's called the Z axis. You know, if you have the, yeah, the X and the Y. So the Z is that diagonal um, where it's not actually three-dimensional, but because of that diagonal movement, you have a feeling of kind of both going um, sort of past and through the whatever is closest to the eye in the foreground. Um, and then thinking about which gestures of, of computer navigation give you um, that sense of of kind of agency to move and which would feel sort of most natural to a viewer because of the gestures they're already familiar with. The sonic element was really crucial from the beginning and in our rehearsal process because I think so often in crowds, sonic cues really are important to how crowds escalate, how they mutate, and often how they break and form. And so those articulating what those vocal cues were and what vocal non-fluencies also were important in these crowds was like of murmurs of shouts clapping etc how those rhythmic patterns were a part of the choreography um, was really important to our 
our research together in the dance studio and also really crucial to how the dancers performed the work because it's not to a musical score. The timing was so internal to, to their collective. And so oftentimes these kind of escalations of, of vocal patterns of clapping, of stomping, um, were a type of like shared metronome for them. Um, so the sound design uh, was created by um, Danira James and Asafki Drone, um, two really phenomenal sound designers. And what we talked about in creating the physical installation was how to map the sense of scale visually onto the sound. So they created three different sound channels for each of the perspectives. The first channel is sort of above this ambient hum you don't really get access to like the details of the body. You, you kind of feel like you're above this level of like atmosphere. And then the second channel in with that dolly shot, they started bringing in like the spatial context. So you start hearing traffic, voices, um, wind, uh, you start, you kind of feel into the space through that sound. And then the third channel, they created this like really textured detail um, of the bodies themselves, of the breathing, of their of their speech, etc. And so, when this was in the physical space, these three would blend together. Um, and I think there was kind of an interesting, like, echoing thing that would happen, where you might be watching one channel and hearing something behind you that you've already seen or haven't seen yet because the channels are, are slightly off in their timing intentionally. Um, they kind of will accelerate and decelerate at, at slightly different paces depending on which perspective you're in. Um, and so there'd be this kind of sonic recall when you could watch them in a physical space because there was this bleed between them. We weren't using speakers that were, um, you know, really isolated in space. Um, and so that was really interesting, I think, because the viewer wasn't just pulled by their desire to see the movement from one perspective. They were also pulled by these kind of sonic cues. And so in the digital version, we considered having them um, play at the same time, but when we tried it, you know, without that distancing in physical space, it was just all compressed onto each other. And the cacophony, I think, took away from the sense of the viewer's agency to choose, you know, which perspective to reside in. And so now in the digital version, you really get a little bit more of that sense of like sonic match between the perspective and the sound. And so I think in a way it asked the viewer to be a little bit more deliberate, whereas I think there was perhaps more space for kind of wandering and residing in between in the physical version, because um, you could kind of position yourself between two different screens because they you could see through the, each screen. Um, so some viewers would kind of place themselves being in a spot where they'd be in a wash of both sounds and could kind of turn their heads to see two different perspectives. Other than shifting it from the physical to the digital, how would you say the meaning of the work has shifted in today's world now when there aren't crowds uh, regularly? Yeah, I mean, it's 
it's been fascinating and overwhelming to kind of review this work this year because it's taken on so many meanings that um, of course I could have never anticipated. And I think it's interesting in a few different ways. One is that like on the one hand, it's a time where crowds are prohibited. And on the other hand, it's a time when their presence is so much um, more profound because of that prohibition. You know, so for example, thinking about Black Lives Matter protests and seeing seeing those crowds after not seeing any crowds. And so there's this heightened quality to what a crowd means when we are in it and when we when we see it. There's that, I think, kind of tension between prohibition and, and um, sort of amplification of, of what a crowd means at this time. And at the same time, I also think this year has been like a really heightened example of what this piece was responding to in the first place, which is that the visual narrative of the pandemic has been so dominated by crowd choreography. Like if you think about the images that have dominated during this time, we moved from images of like completely empty vacated spaces where we have a memory, a collective memory of having seen huge crowds. Like for example, empty Times Square, empty Trafalgar Square, et cetera. Those images were all over the place in the beginning of the pandemic. To seeing images of crowds of scarcity, you know, of seeing so much of the kind of, at least I'll speak for the US, the, the scarcity of our, of our society in terms of people queuing for food, people queuing for testing, um, people queuing to get into hospitals for treatment. And so those images then circulated as, as you know, this narrative. And then, and then thinking also of images of graveyards being a mass as another type of, of sort of crowd imagery of, of those lost. Um, and then of course, to images of crowds in civil disobedience and protest. Um, and I could keep going, but I think so much of our year has been, the visual record of it is through images of crowds. And so for me, that's kind of further heightened how much the way we, f- we feel the embodiment of crowds and their choreography and visualize them is a part of our discourse um, and a part of our politics, even if we don't really call it as such. That's filmmaker and choreographer Sarah Friedland discussing her work Crowds with contributor Sydney Burroughs. Friedland presented Crowds as an in-person experience in 2019 at La Mama Galleria as part of Performa 19 and the Ann Arbor Film Festival. Then in 2021, she presented it digitally at the University of Rochester and American Dance Festival. Unsequence is produced and mixed by me, Stephanie Wolf. Joe Kai composed our theme music. And thanks to all of our Patreon subscribers. You can join them in supporting this podcast at patreon.com slash DIY dancer. Find Unsequence wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for listening.